our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, here we are cruising through the month of December. By the way, today is December 7th, a date that will live in virtue. Oh, what? You, you've heard a different version of this? Okay, well, you know, to be fair, FDR was talking about a terrible sneak attack that had taken place. I'm talking about uh, this, is, uh, this is another day, another opportunity for you and I to move forward, to uh, move the needle in the right direction for good things to happen. Now, does that mean we're going to be uh, free of... Hardship, trials, disappointments, and even failures. Not at all. I mean, come on, that's a part of life. But we have some pretty amazing tools to work with. And uh, most of all, I think we have the right principles on our side. So even if you feel like, well, I'm in a bit of a losing slump right now. Trust me, if you're doing the right thing and if you're doing it for the right reasons, it's okay. What appears to be a loss to most people, you know, may still be a victory assuming that you are, you know, following the direction your moral compass is is pointing you. Speaking of which, this is not an endorsement for any particular politician, but I want to play a little excerpt uh, from, from a recent debate here and just tell you, I am really impressed to hear any candidate whatsoever say what uh, Vivek Ramaswamy has said to these other Republican candidates. This guy's an absolute savage. Now, there, look, there, I, I want you to understand, I'm not endorsing him. I'm not saying, boy, so therefore you better vote for him. I am just saying that uh, he is saying some things. He's speaking truth to power in a way I haven't heard anybody do since, uh, what, what was this guy's name, Trump, back in 2016. Okay, check it out, though. This is what uh, Ramaswamy is saying to some of the various candidates, including, uh, or some of the hopefuls, I should say, uh, Nikki, ha- Nikki Haley, uh, Chris Christie, uh, Ron DeSantis. I'm sorry, there was one other one on there, and I forget who it was. But, but listen to the one person with the courage to call out the establishment slash deep state rather than do its best not to offend them so that uh, they can have its blessing. This guy's an absolute savage. Check it out. Yeah, here's my issue with all three of my other colleagues on this debate stage. Is all three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. Ron DeSantis, you've been a great governor, but you would have never been one without actually begging Donald Trump for that endorsement. And you attacked him in your Nikki book Haley. a year ago. Same thing with Chris Christie as a lobbyist, begging them for COVID money for his special interests in New Jersey, prepping him for the debates last time around. These people are now Monday morning quarterbacking some decision he made. I think the real enemy is not Donald Trump. It's not even Joe Biden. It is the deep state that at least Donald Trump attempted to take on. And if you want somebody who's going to speak truth to power, then vote for somebody who's going to speak the truth to you. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? That the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11. That the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform. That the 2020 election was indeed stolen by big tech. 
that the 2016 election, the one that Trump won for sure, was also one that was stolen from him by the national security establishment okay. that actually Thank put you. up the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that they knew was false. There's a reason why I'm the only person That'll on the it, stage sir. who can Thank say you. these things. That's what it's going to take, not people who were licking his boots one time and now Monday okay. morning quarterback him and criticizing him when it's convenient. Wow. Like I say, I, I'm not telling you, yeah, you need to vote for this guy, but I am just, re I, it's refreshing to hear somebody who is speaking without apology and saying some things that really need to be said. And of course, yeah, that runs well counter. That's not what the media told me. You think? Ah, <laughs> oh, man. Look, may, maybe it's unfair of me to, to cast aspersions at people who haven't yet woken up to who the real enemy is. By the way, it's not your neighbor. It's not the girl with purple hair down there, you know, get wagging her finger at you because you, uh, you know, misgendered her or used the wrong pronouns. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is the state and every mechanism and every tool that it uses to try to coerce you into compliance with things that violate your conscience or just flat, flat out violate your natural rights, your freedoms. And it's so rare to hear anybody, at least on a national stage, acknowledge truths like, well, it does look like January 6th uh, was an inside job. You know, it's not about, we're so much smarter than everybody else. We're so much better than, we're right. I don't know about you, but there's times I really wish that, uh, I wish I was wrong. I don't want to be right because the truth is pretty ugly and sometimes it's pretty painful. And yet here we go, you know, <laughs> you know, people go along with it with this, this naive attitude that says, well, you know, there may be some problems, but if there was anything really hanky going on, well, the media would tell us about it. the press would tell us that's their job, but that's not their job. Their job is to make sure that to whatever you do know, it's just enough to keep you satisfied to feel like, well, yeah, I'm informed. I tuned in the uh, NBC nightly news and they told me everything that I needed to know about this brought to you by Pfizer. There's another story in and of itself. But that's not what it is to, to really understand what's going on. If you want to know what's going on, you're going to have to do the homework yourself. Not many people are willing to do that. The fact that you are even listening to this program right now tells me you're willing to go out of the comfort zone. You're willing to hear uncomfortable truths rather than just be lulled to sleep by flattering lies and warm, soft words that mask the evisceration of your liberties. I know it's not an easy place to be in. And in fact, it feels right now like we're picking up speed. I liken it to a roller coaster, you know, that first initial rush of speed after you top out from that slow climb up the hill. The one where it builds its momentum. It feels like we are in that downward zoom right now. And on the one hand, it's a little bit exhilarating, but it's also just a little bit terrifying. Because we don't know exactly how wild this ride is going to get. Now, if past history is any indicator, it could get pretty wild. In fact, uh, you know, if, if, if the fourth turning methodology of historical cycles has anything to teach us, there's a chance it's going to get really crazy. Because fourth turnings, such as we saw during the American Revolution and then the founding period that followed, such as we saw during the war between the states and the Reconstruction period that followed, such as we saw during the Great Depression and World War II and all of the reorganization that followed that, 
yeah, things, things can get crazy. We're talking civic unrest. We're talking economic upheaval. Generally, you notice what else those three things had in common there? The, the, those three previous fourth turnings, they all had war. And every single one of those wars was bigger, more destructive, more terrifying than the one before it. I don't want you to leave you feeling hopeless. I, 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 that My number one goal is I want to inform my audience, but I want to inform them in a way that leaves them more inspired and maybe even a little bit excited about the role that you get to play in the events that are unfolding than simply terrified and feeling like, holy cow, we're all doomed. I can tell you that the, the principles that are at stake are true principles. In fact, I'm going to go one step further. The principles that are, that are at stake are based on godly, eternal principles. What am I saying? Let me just come right out and say it then. God is in favor of freedom. How do we know this? Because among the greatest gifts that he gave man were free will, the ability to, to be an agent for yourself, to make your own decisions, to act for yourself, as well as the gift of liberty, to be able to act without that outside coercion. Even God himself will not force you to believe or think or do a certain thing. Now, he does command things, and I think those things are, are sometimes misunderstood as, oh, well, he's trying to take all of our fun away. But if you've ever, uh, you know, if you've ever driven a really steep, curvy mountain road, you know, with, with sheer drop-offs of a thousand feet, you know, off the side of the road, that guardrail that's put there, that's kind of the, that's kind of the role that I see, you know, God's commandments playing. It's not there to spoil your fun. Well, I was going to go sailing out over the edge and the stupid guardrail kept me from doing it. It's establishing the boundaries, which if you stay in those boundaries... You're going to find greater freedom, greater happiness, greater ability to act. I know it sounds counterintuitive. Well, what, what are rules? Don't they restrict you? Some rules may feel very restrictive, but then at the same time, there are certain actions we can take that limit our ability to choose for ourselves and limit our freedom. Case in point, you know, a, a young man takes a girl on a date and uh, let's say that he engages in some kind of activity and uh, she gets pregnant. Okay. Their choices are now limited in terms of what can they rightly do to deal with the situation. Someone who, you know, gets involved with drugs to the point that they find themselves addicted. Yeah, they're exercising their freedom, but there comes a point where suddenly their freedom is very restricted. Maybe they've run afoul of the law. Maybe they're physically addicted to the point it could kill them. I hope you get the point. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I never know where my opening monologue is going to go. Sometimes it surprises even me. But I have, I have something I want to share with you that I found extremely timely. And that is how humor is such a great tool to help us manage the stress of a world that's getting more complicated by the minute. It's kind of funny, too. I'm, I'm looking at this weird alignment in the stars. Uh, I found this article. In fact, it showed up in my inbox this morning, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. That name looks really familiar. It's a guy by the name of Joshua Glosson, who writes about how comedy, laughter, and humor can improve our lives. And I thought, his name sounds very familiar. And then I got looking at my calendar, and I realized, oh, 
I have a call with Joshua Glosson later this morning on a somewhat unrelated matter, but he had reached out to me earlier this week about uh, booking um, some really interesting guests. And so that's a conversation we're going to have later, and you're going to hear about and hopefully from some of these guests in the course of this program as, as we move forward in the weeks ahead. But let's talk about how comedy, laughter, and humor can improve your life. After all, a good sense of humor is typically associated with intelligence, a likable personality, and even your work ethic. Joshua Glosson says laughter has amazing social perks. Health benefits, it can help you enhance your memory capacity. In fact, over the past few years, there's been a revival in comedy with dad jokes, stand-up comedy, skit comedy, sketch comedy, and workplace humor. He says, although humor varies from culture to culture, creating laughter has has a universal effect of making people feel happy and brightening the immediate environment. A great documentary to, to watch on the cultural differences of humor is Exporting Raymond, which is about getting the American sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond aired in different cultures while maintaining its comedic appeal to audiences all over. Now, according to comedy writer Scott Dickers, the founding editor of satirical news site The Onion, there are 11 categories of comedy. There's irony, where the intended meaning is opposite of the literal meaning. There's character, comedic character, acting on personality traits. You'll also find reference, common experiences that audiences can relate to. Shock, surprising jokes usually involving sex, drugs, gross-out humor, or swearing. Parody, where you mimic a familiar character, trope, or cliche in an unfamiliar way. Hyperbole, exaggeration to absurd extremes. Then there's wordplay with puns, rhymes, double entendres, and so forth. Analogy, comparing two disparate things. Madcap, wacky, silly, crazy, nonsensical. Meta-humor, jokes about jokes or about the idea of comedy. And finally, misplaced focus, where attention is focused on the wrong thing. Now, of course, not all humor is fit for every situation or environment, says Joshua. But finding that balance is surely helpful for social interactions. Humor can lighten moods, improve morale, encourage positivity, boost energy, freshen perspectives, create and strengthen interpersonal relations, and spark cognitive thinking. Yet no matter your efforts, some people will still take offense to anything and everything, not smile, not laugh. They'll become envious or cause problems for those wishing to share humor. Thorin Klaus... Let's try his name again. Thorin Klosowski... I hope I'm saying that right. A staff writer for the New York Times who covers privacy and security for Wirecutter says the best way to handle a sourpuss is to first find that person's baseline to determine if this is a personality trait or just a difference of opinion. Second, get the opinions of three other people who are not too connected in order to see the varying perspectives of the person in question. And third, ask the person directly and respectfully why they think the way they do. Nevertheless, fret not because most people will still enjoy and appreciate tasteful comedy. A good sense of humor is typically associated with intelligence, a likable personality, and a work ethic. Another another benefit of utilizing humor is that it enhances one's health. Michigan State University's Jonathan Novello explains how humor is medicine in five key ways. Number one, laughter is a potent releaser of endorphins, creating a sense of euphoria. Laughter... Number two, contagiously forms social bonds, which is also an endorphin releaser. Number three, laughter has a similar effect to antidepressants by releasing serotonin. Number four, laughter improves mental health all around. 
And number five, laughter protects your heart as it is a natural anti-inflammatory helping the circulatory system, also known as the cardiovascular system. I know all those times you got scolded for laughing or giggling, you know, inappropriately or at the wrong time or place. Hmm. You could have just pleaded, hey, I'm doing this for my health. <laughs> or at least I really wish I'd have tried that. Now, Joshua Glossen writes other Glossen rather writes that other independent research shows other health benefits. For instance, a 15-year study of 53,556 women and men in Norway suggested that having a good sense of humor may significantly increase life expectancy. That's according to Scientific American. It's as if those live, laugh, love signs may be onto something, even though some of us feel like we die from cringe a little, a little each time that we see them. Evan, the cast man, Cassidy, is a stand-up host and improv comedian from Southern California. For him, comedy and laughter play a large role in healing individuals as well as communities. Now, Evan speaks of genuine comedy, not the luxurious shows and television specials, as being much simpler and raw in its delivery, while serving as a catalyst for bonding. In a recent interview with Joshua Glosson, he said this, this is how he would describe comedy. Live up, or let, let's try that again. Live stand-up comedy is a pretty niche thing. It often fails to be funny. A guy says laughter is the best medicine to get you to spend 75 bucks on a cover charge and drinks at a comedy club. Comedy is the trade of inducing laughter. It's like a massage for the soul, mind, and nerves. He says, the hardest I've ever laughed was just sitting at a diner with a couple of buddies. When we have a good laugh, it's like winning an arm wrestling match with the absurdity and uncertainty of life, the bills I haven't paid, the interpersonal conflict, and the overseas wars. End quote. He's got a point. Laughter cuts a lot of that stuff down to size, at least to where we can manage it, right? It doesn't do away with it, but we're not just sitting there stewing over things that we may not be able to control. Now, Joshua also points out that a third, a third benefit of humor is the practical application of memory enhancement through mind games. By memorizing many jokes like stand-up comedians do, or for the average person who just wants to know a few funny jokes to share, a person naturally improves his capacity for memorization. That process is rewarded and reinforced by the laughs and social bonding the person creates with the jokes, and it helps wire a person's mind for quicker response times. This internal dopamine reward system functions by releasing dopamine when the jokes are told and well-received by the audience, improving the retention of the joke even further for later recollection. In turn, this strengthens the muscles necessary for memory building. All I know is the only thing sweeter than the sound of applause is the sound of laughter with that applause. So, Joshua Glosson says, Imagine reading silly dad jokes every day and using them when given the opportunity. Not only will the memorization allow for further amplified memorization, but it will also naturally elevate the jokester and their environment in a myriad of ways. When communicating with people from various cultures, consider learning what makes them smile, what makes them live, laugh, love, and what humor to share between you. He says it will benefit everyone involved. I know, I, I have always kind of gravitated towards, you know, the comedic. And I mean that in the sense that given the choice between watching a somber, you know, drama movie or watching a comedy, I'm going to go for the comedy pretty much any time. Now, what's crazy is I go back and I watch some of the stuff that I laughed at, you know, to the point of almost wetting my pants as a kid or as a teenager. And a lot of that stuff, I look at it now and I'm like, dang, I thought that was funny. 
I mean, some of it's some of it's pretty sophomoric and and some of it's just outright rude. But there is a place even for bawdy humor. There's there's a place. But what I love most of all are people who have the ability to laugh at themselves or in a tense situation to defuse it with a well-timed, humorous, or comedic comment. It's not that often that you'll encounter such people, but, you know, when you say you're in a fender bender or something like that, people are feeling crappy, my car is dented, I feel like a fool, the police lights are going, I'm standing here like a criminal as the investigation's going on. A little bit of humor goes a long ways towards easing the tension in those situations. And God bless the people who are able to inject some gentle humor at just the right time. Got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to mention uh, some of the sponsors who make this program possible. You can uh, click on my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and get acquainted with these sponsors. They include lifesavingfood.com, tmcpnation.com, quiltandsew.com, and I just uh, wanted to welcome aboard Iron Sight Brewing Company. This is a subscription coffee company. If you're a coffee drinker, you understand that uh, this is kind of an essential part of a lot of people's days. Even if you're not a coffee drinker, can I just offer a little food for thought here? If you are a person who is, let's just say, uh, putting away commodities for a rainy day, coffee is one of those commodities which would make an excellent barter item. It's the kind of thing that uh, people would, uh, would trade dearly to have in the absence of, you know, not being able to, when they can't get it in the stores or in the absence of a ready availability of coffee shops and whatnot, heaven forbid, you know, the day comes that we find ourselves, you know, having to make do with what we have. You put some of that aside, you'd have something that would make some really great wampum. Okay, hopefully it doesn't sound too apocalyptic, but I'm just saying, it's a, it's a wonderful company run by a great uh, American who loves this country and is a veteran and who really is doing his best to move that needle in the right direction. Ironsight Brewing Company, I'm happy to have him as a sponsor of the show. All right, let's talk about climate crisis. You know climate change is, is almost certainly going to be the next big crisis that the authoritarians will use to leverage us into whatever you know control they're trying to gain. And Kit Knightley reports about the COP28 meeting taking place in Dubai. Or no, I'm sorry, it's the is it Dubai? It is in Dubai. Sorry. I was going to say it's in the UAE. UAE. That's where Dubai is. Okay. So as of this morning, Kit writes, this was published a couple of days ago. We are 4 days into the 2-week climate change summit in Dubai. You know the one where hundreds and hundreds of jets flew, <laughs> burning massive amounts of, of fossil fuels and adding who knows how many greenhouse gases to the world's atmosphere. Yes, uh, he says, as we can all note for the thousandth time, literal fleets of private jets have descended on the desert so bankers and billionaires can talk about making sure we don't drive anymore or eat too much cheese. But what's really on the agenda? The answer is globalism, and it's never been more obvious. This is the good news the agenda is becoming extremely obvious. 
So consider yourself, you know, to be someone who at least has the benefit of awareness of what's going on. And from there, hopefully we can work our our solutions or our ways to avoid falling fully into their clutches. Now, the president of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, essentially said as much, quote, the planet is fed up with unfulfilled climate agreements. Governments cannot escape their responsibilities. No country will solve its problems alone. We are all obligated to act together beyond our borders. That does sound like collectivism (laughs) writ large. Thursday's opening remarks were predictably doom-laden, says Kit Knightley, with His Royal Highness Charles III and UN Secretary General General Antonio Guterres falling into a traditional good cop, bad cop hustle. So, for instance, His Royal Highness Charles III warned that we're embarking on a vast, frightening experiment asking, how dangerous are we actually prepared to make our world? While Tony offered just the barest, thinnest slice of hope to world leaders, it is not too late. You can prevent planetary crash and burn. We have the technologies to avoid the worst of climate chaos if we act now. Now, the rest of the two weeks will be doubtless committed to lobbyists, bankers, royals, and politicians deciding exactly how they're going to act, or more accurately, how they're going to sell their pre-agreed actions to their cattle-like populations. They are literally telling us their plans. All we have to do is listen. For example, Friday and Saturday were given over to the World Climate Action Summit, at which over 170 world leaders pledged support for Agenda 2030. Now, the COP28 website proudly boasts about it. Quote, on 1 and 2 December, 176 world leaders gathered for the World Climate Action Summit, signaling a new era of climate action on the road to 2030. Yeah, they're not exactly hiding it. That would be 176 global leaders out of roughly 195 countries, so they have over 90% of the world covered. Among the agreements and the pledges signed at the summit so far is the Emirates Declaration on Sustainable Agriculture, Resilient Food Systems, and Climate Action, which, according to the BBC, pledges to take aim at planet-warming food. Can you read between the lines on what that's saying? Haven't we all played this game long enough to know what that means? It means no more meat and dairy and a lot more bugs and GMO soy cubes. Now, of course, they never say that. In fact, they never mention any specific foods or practices. You can read the whole declaration. It's linked in in the article here from Kit Knightley. Instead, they use phrases like orient policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or shifting from higher greenhouse gas emitting practices to more sustainable production and consumption approaches. So maintaining plausible deniability via vague language, that's part of the dance. But anyone who's paying attention knows exactly what they're talking about. It doesn't stop there. World leaders have also agreed to establish a loss and damage fund, a $430 million resource for developing countries that need to recover after being damaged by climate change. A.J. Banga, head of the uh, noted charitable organization, the World Bank, is all in favor of the idea and will be supporting the plan by agreeing to pause debt repayments from any government impacted by climate change. We know how this works. We saw the same thing in the IHR amendments following COVID. It's a bribe pool, one that serves to both further the narrative of climate change and instruct policy in the third world. Any developing nation's government that wants a slice of that pie will have to publicly talk about all the negative impacts climate change has had on their country. 
At the same time, to get the money, they'll almost certainly have to agree to adopt climate-friendly policies and or submit their climate policies to an independent panel of experts appointed by the U.N. Right on cue, the president of Kenya has already spoken up. Quote, in eastern Africa, catastrophic flooding has followed the most severe drought the recent region has seen in over 40 years. A tendency to ignore Africa's de- developmental and industrial needs is no longer a tenable position. Turning Africa into a green powerhouse is not just essential for the continent. It is also vital for global industrialization and decarbonization. Now, Kid Knightley says, look, you can almost see the dollar signs in his eyes. And alongside the food pledge and loss fund, we have the Global Renewables and Energy Efficiency Pledge, which aims to increase reliance on green energy. Over 120 countries signed that one. And then there's the Global Methane Pledge, signed by 155 governments as well as 50 oil companies. These companies represent around half the world's oil production, and they just want to help the planet. They have no financial stake in this situation at all. Wink, wink. Then there's the smaller declaration on climate, relief, recovery, and peace. This was signed by only 70 countries and 39 NGOs. That one emphasizes the link between war and carbon emissions and aims to boost financial support for climate resilience in war-torn and fragile settings. Whatever that means in real terms, Kit says, I'm not sure. And of course, 124 countries, including the EU and China, signing the inevitable declaration on climate and health. Now, it is funded to the tune of $1 billion from donors like the Rockefeller Foundation and supposedly aims to better leverage synergies at the intersection of climate change and health to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of finance flows, which might be the worst sentence anyone has ever written. Kit says, I've written enough about the agenda behind linking climate change to public health for one lifetime. In fact, uh, Kit offers at least six different articles that go into deeper analysis of the topic. But all of this is going to culminate in what they call the global stock take, essentially a midterm report for the Paris agreements, which can be leveraged to accelerate ambition in their next round of climate action plans due in 2025. Now, whatever leverage to accelerate ambition turns out to mean, you can be sure that all of the attending governments will happily comply. Isn't it crazy? It's basically like COVID all over again. We know, just like COVID, the official narrative of climate change is a lie. We know, just like like, uh, COVID, climate change is being used as an excuse to usher in massive social control and global governance. And we know, just like COVID, almost every world government on both sides of the divide is backing it. And even if they don't agree, even if they're happy to kill each other's citizens in large numbers, they're all on board the globalist gravy train, all going in the same direction to the same destination, and it's never been more obvious. Case in point, did you hear that Utah is being seriously considered as a site for a future, uh, I think it's a future Winter Olympics again? Only this time, in return for being chosen to host the Olympics once more, They also had to agree that they would meet certain clean air standards. In other words, climate change, you know, uh, policies at the behest of whatever world organizations are, you know, tied into the Olympics. Did the people of Utah vote for that? Is that something that they agreed that they would do? And if the answer is no, then why are their leaders making those kinds of agreements with global organizations? Are they really looking out for the best interests of the people? or just simply bending the knee to an agenda that is becoming more naked by the moment. What's that? The sun is showing uh, too many sunspots? 
Oh, you know what that means? That's right, higher taxes. That'll fix the sun, won't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. And again, my thanks to those of you who not only listen to the program, but have actually crossed that line to active support of this program. And whether it's five bucks a month or whether you uh, take on like a yearly support role, I really appreciate you. Thank you for all that you're doing to make it possible for me to do the work that I do. Got a couple quick articles I want to point in your direction. Um, Carrie McDonald's got this beautiful article about if your kids are not happy at school, you need to trust yourself to find them another one. And she is she is the expert. She is the person that I would definitely point to people towards if if they uh, if they're examining their uh, educational options. So I've got a link to her article. It's, it's wonderful. If your kids are unhappy at school, trust yourself to find them another one. Then I also have another article here. This one's a little more hard-hitting, and I understand it's an uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable subject for people. But uh, Linda, Linda Killian wonders how far would things have to go before the American people say enough to the people who are trying to forcefully remake our society? In other words, to throw all of the institutions, that revolutionary fervor that's going on right now, particularly within the educational realm, both you know public school as well as higher education. Well, Linda wonders if the sexual transitioning of children is going to be the tipping point, which will cause enough people to stand up and put their foot down and say no. I don't know the answer, but I think she examines this uh, rather thoughtfully. This is not just angry spittle flinging about, uh, you know, what uh, these activists are doing. It uh, really, it shows what's at stake here. And her article questions, you know, whether those who are, are pushing this to the point where they would remove parental rights and parental authority if they don't indulge their child's, you know, desire to, to transition to whatever the, the trans activists are telling them they should be transitioning to. There is definitely a coming collision. So here's your early warning about what's coming down the pike. You know, might want to be aware of it at the very least and maybe even make some adjustments if necessary. And that brings us to our article of the day. Now, if you've been working really hard to snap out of your political tunnel vision, I've got a terrific essay from Doug Casey that should help in that regard. Doug is writing about the end of the nation state, and I love that he gives some very solid historical perspective to understand why this is happening. Doug says there have been a fair number of references to the subject of files, P-H-Y-L-E-S, in this publication over the years. And this essay will discuss the topic in detail, especially how files are likely to replace the nation state, one of mankind's worst inventions. Now, Doug says, this may be a bad time, or this might be a good time, rather, to discuss the subject. Because we've been this, we've been on the receiving end of an almost unremitting stream of bad news on multiple fronts for years to come. So it might be good to keep a hopeful prospect in mind. But we start by looking at where we've been. And he says, I trust you'll excuse my skating over all of human political history in a few paragraphs. But he says, my object is to provide a framework for where we're going rather than an anthropological monograph. 
mankind has so far gone through three main stages of political organization since day one, say 200,000 years ago, when anatomically modern men started appearing. We can call them tribes, kingdoms, and nation-states. Now, Karl Marx had a lot of things wrong, especially his moral philosophy, but one of the acute observations he made was that the means of production are perhaps the most important determinant of how a society is structured. Based on that, so far in history, only two really important things have happened. The agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. Everything else is just a footnote. So, let's see how these things relate. He starts with the agricultural election and the end, or election, the agricultural revolution, rather, and the end of tribes. Doug Casey writes, in prehistoric times, the largest political economic group was the tribe. Now, in that sense, man is a social creature. It was natural enough to be loyal to the tribe. It made sense. Almost everyone in the tribe was genetically related. The group was essential for mutual survival in the wilderness. That made them the totality of people that counted in a person's life, except for others from alien tribes who were in competition for scarce resources and might want to kill you for good measure. Tribes tend to be natural meritocracies, with the smartest and the strongest assuming leadership. But they're also natural democracies, small enough that everyone can have a say on important issues. Tribes are small enough that everyone knows everyone else, knows what their weak and strong points are. Everyone falls into a niche of marginal advantage doing what they do best because simply that's, that's what's necessary to survive. Bad actors are ostracized or fail to wake up in a pool of their own blood some morning. Tribes are socially constraining, but considering the many faults of human nature, he says, a natural and useful form of organization in a society with primitive technology. Now, as people built their pool of capital and technology over many generations, populations grew. At the end of the last ice age, around 12,000 years ago, all over the world there was a population explosion. People started living in towns and relying on agriculture as opposed to hunting and gathering. So they went from being nomadic to actually building civilizations. Large groups of people living together formed hierarchies with a king of some description on top of the heap. Now, Doug says those who adapted to the new agricultural technology and the new political structure accumulated the excess resources necessary for waging extended warfare against tribes still living at the subsistence level. The more evolved societies had the numbers and the weapons to completely triumph over the laggards. If you wanted to stay tribal, you better live in the middle of nowhere, somewhere devoid of all the resources that others might want. Otherwise, it was a sure thing a nearby kingdom would uh, enslave you and steal your property. Next came the Industrial Revolution and the end of kingdoms. From around 12,000 B.C. to the mid-1600s, the world's cultures were organized under strong men, ranging from petty lords to kings, pharaohs, or emperors. He says, it's odd to me, at least, how much the human animal seems to like the idea of monarchy. It's mythologized, especially in a medieval context, as a system with noble kings, fair princesses, and brave knights riding out of castles on a hill to right injustices. He says, as my friend Rick May- Mayberry likes to point out, Maybury likes to point out rather, quite accurately, the reality differs quite a bit from the myth. The king is rarely more than a successful thug, a Tony Soprano at best, or perhaps a little Stalin. The princess was an unbathed hag in a chastity belt, the knight a hired killer, and the shining castle on the hill the headquarters of a concentration camp with plenty of dungeons for the politically incorrect. 
With kingdoms, loyalties weren't so much to the country, a nebulous, arbitrary concept, but to the ruler. You were a subject of the king first and foremost. Your linguistic, ethnic, religious, and other affiliations were secondary. So it's strange how when people think of the kingdom period of history, they think only in terms of what the ruling classes did and had. Even though if you were born then, the chances were 98%, you'd be a simple peasant who owned nothing, knew nothing beyond what his betters told him, and sent most of his surplus production to his rulers. But again, the gradual accumulation of capital and knowledge made the next step possible, that being the Industrial Revolution. Now, as the means of production changed, the substitution of machines for muscle, the amount of wealth took a huge leap forward. The average man still might not have had much, but the possibility to do something other than beat the earth with a stick for his whole life opened up largely as a result of the Renaissance. Then the game changed totally with the American and French revolutions. People no longer felt that they were owned by some ruler. Instead, they now gave their loyalty to a new institution, the nation-state. Some innate atavism, probably dating back to before humans branched from the chimpanzees about three million years ago, seems to dictate the naked ape to give his loyalty to something bigger than himself, which has delivered us to today's prevailing norm, the nation-state, a group of people who tend to share language, religion, and ethnicity. He says the idea of the nation-state is especially effective when it's organized as a democracy where the average person is given the illusion that he has some measure of control over where Leviathan is headed. Now, on the plus side, by the end of the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution had provided the common man with the personal freedom as well as the capital and technology to improve things at a rapidly accelerating pace. So what caused that sea change, he says? He suspects it was largely due to intellectual factors, like the printing press, the, a physical factor like the widespread use of gunpowder. From here, he talks about the problem with the state, the nation-state. And I love the quote that he uses from Thomas Paine here to kind of drive the point home. My country is wherever liberty lives. But he asks, where does liberty live today? And the truth of the matter is it no longer has a home. It's become a true refugee since America, which was an excellent idea that grew roots in a country of that name and degenerated into the United States, which is just another unfortunate nation-state and it's on a slippery slope. There's a lot more to this article, but you really should take the time to uh, go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are show notes for December 7th, 2023. And check out this article from Doug Casey. Take a quick look at my sponsors too. Let them know you appreciate them helping to uh, bring you this message on a daily basis. This is the Brian Hyde Show.